I'd like to join with Jeffrey and Brenton in welcoming you all here today. It's a great uh, pleasure and joy and a blessing to be with you worshiping God together today. hope the things that we talk about will help you in your Christian walk. I hope that it'll be edifying to you and uplift you as you go from here. So last time I spoke, I talked about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus began his ministry here on earth, he was constantly talking about this new kingdom. We see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is proclaiming this royal announcement that there is good news, that there is this kingdom that was foretold in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. It was here. It was coming to pass. There would be a Messiah that would usher in this new era where God's people would draw near to Him and be a true blessing to the world. So this, this blessing was first promised to Abraham, and he was told that through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so as Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he's bringing that good news, he's bringing that blessing to the world. And he sees this kingdom to be that blessing. Himself and his kingdom are going to be the blessing to the nations. And so this morning, what we're going to be talking about is blessing. We're going to be talking about the Beatitudes and starting a study on the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 4, we see Jesus announcing his message, preaching the gospel message, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop what you're doing, change your ways because the kingdom is finally here. And this is his message as he goes from town to town. And it begs the question, well, what does the kingdom look like? What does it look like to live in the kingdom? And so Matthew conveniently gives us three chapters of Jesus' sermon that is teaching about his kingdom. It's about how his kingdom makes, or how the markers are shown in individuals' lives of the kingdom here on earth. How you ought to act and behave if you're going to be a part of this kingdom. And so as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of common sayings that we get from this, and it's permeated our culture today. You can think of being the salt of the earth. Turn the other cheek. The golden rule. Go the extra mile. These are all things that are commonly said in our everyday language. And so Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount permeate through culture today. And as he begins his sermon, he begins with the Beatitudes. These pronouncements of blessings upon people who don't really sound like they're blessed at all. And so here we have the beginnings of the upside-down kingdom, one where human wisdom is flipped on its head. And at first glance, Jesus' blessings don't make a lot of sense. And so if you're like me, perhaps you've looked at the Beatitudes and you know them pretty well, but they're a little bit confusing. You're not exactly sure how to interpret them. And it may leave you with some questions like, is Jesus asking me to be all these things? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be meek? Does Jesus want me to mourn? Why would I be blessed if people persecute me? And so we're going to go through the Beatitudes this morning and hopefully answer those questions for you and for me. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, at the beginning of this sermon, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So here at the beginning, I think there's something important to note. You see the crowds and Jesus' disciples. And so we ought to ask the question, well, who makes up these crowds? 
Who are Jesus' disciples? Well, this is shown in chapter 4, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' disciples are everyday guys. Up to this point in Matthew, he's called four fishermen, guys with common occupations. As he goes on, he adds more people that are common and maybe a bit controversial. And he calls a tax collector to come be his disciple. He calls somebody who might be labeled as an extremist, a zealot, to come be his disciple. He doesn't go to the synagogues. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the rulers of this world to get his disciples, but he goes to everyday people. At the end of chapter 4, we read who the crowds are, starting in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So these are the people who make up the crowds. I believe that these crowds probably made up people from all walks of life. But it draws attention to those who are sick, those who are hurting, those who are broken, people that needed the help of Christ. And so this is the first surprising part about the kingdom. These are the people that Jesus is most concerned about. It's not the rulers or religious people, but he goes to those that have a low status in life. And he opens his message to all. And so I think for us to understand the Beatitudes and to gain on some key admonition, we have to understand who he's talking to. And so in seeing this and understanding the cultural setting, I think it sheds a new light on what Jesus is talking about. And whenever we read it with the perspective of who the crowds are, who his disciples are, it shows that this truly is good news. Good news to those who are in need. When Jesus was asked about why he spent his time around these types of people and and around sinners, this is what he said in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These are the people that need Jesus the most. Those who need a Savior. Those who need hope. I think it's also important for us to look a little bit at the cultural setting. So during this time, the Roman Empire was un, uh, had Jerusalem or uh, this region under control, and it brought a fair amount of safety from outside attacks and maybe some technological advancements, but it also brought armed soldiers and guards and tax collectors. And these tax collectors were responsible for taking up the taxes at each city, and they would, they would take beyond what was required so they could pay themselves a handsome salary. And so taxes were something that were very oppressive to these people. And the Jews struggled because of taxes. And because of this, poverty was very common. There were people that lived in an oppressive state. And so if you couldn't pay your taxes, you had to sell your possessions. If your possessions want to pay for your taxes, you might have to sell yourself into slavery. And so as the Jews look around them and they look at the Roman society, they see a society that's corrupt. A society that okays abortion. A society that promotes and glorifies suicide. One that has, uh, that, where slavery and human trafficking are commonplace. Where emperor worship is encouraged. And so as a Jew looking out and looking for the Messiah, they're looking in wait for this new kingdom. 
They're looking for the Messiah to come and do justice and set things right in the land. And here sits Jesus on top of this mountain. Like Moses coming down from the mountain, bringing the commandments of God, Jesus is bringing in a new law. He's bringing in a new kingdom with this sermon. And here in his teaching, he's raising the stakes, and he shows how God intends to live with man in this new kingdom. And so let's read this with the gospel and the good news of the kingdom in mind as well. So with any good sermon, a preacher has to come up with a good introduction, something that captures his audience, something that lays the foundation. And Jesus starts with these blessings, the Beatitudes. And it brings up the question, well, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, Jesus is doing something that's common in the Old Testament is pronouncing blessing on a group of people. You may be familiar with Psalm chapter 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So in the following examples, Jesus is going to show those who draw near to God. He's going to show what it means to truly be blessed. And as we think of the word blessing, I think it's one of those words that kind of gets washed down over time. And at least for me, loses some of its meaning. I have a hard time defining the word blessing without using the word blessed. It's like, how do you know you're blessed? Well, I'm blessed, right? And if we look at what the world sees as blessed, and maybe that's crept into what our image of, of the word blessing means, you can do a quick little experiment. If you have social media, just search the, ha- the hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. It's kind of become a joke a little bit, right? But you'll see what people's perception is, and what it means to them to be blessed. And so I did this the other day and saw a picture of a woman standing in front of her new car. Or you see somebody who's won a football game or a basketball game, and they believe that makes them blessed. Believes it's a showing of blessing. But if we look at the biblical meaning of blessing, I think it has a much richer meaning. And I, as you look at the word blessed in the Old Testament, it comes with two different meanings. There's a couple different words that are translated as blessed. The first is just happy, gladness. Jason talked about Psalm chapter 32 a couple weeks ago. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So we think about a state of being forgiven of the things we've done, a state of forgiveness when our transgressions are blotted out or taken away. We have gladness. We have joy in that. So that's one of the meanings of blessing. Another uh, meaning for blessing is to describe those who have found favor with God. As I looked up the definition, it presents this image of like kneeling down before God and Him pronouncing a blessing on you. And as we find it in Scripture, it's contrasted with the word cursing. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So here, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he's given them the law, and he's telling them the results of, if you follow the law, here's what's going to happen. If you don't follow the law, 
Here's the other consequences. And he sets before them life and death, blessing and cursing. And I think this defines pretty well what blessing means for us. Blessing is finding favor with God because you follow His law. And that blessing leads to life, and it leads to life more abundant. But the curse, on the other hand, is when we live by our own standards. We live by the world, and we fall into sin, and that brings about death. That brings about the curse. You can find instances of Jesus pronouncing blessings and woes, blessings and curses on people. And so Jesus followed this example as well. So by putting this at the beginning of his lesson, of his sermon here, he's showing the people who have truly found favor with God, those who are truly happy, those who are glad. Some people call it the good life, living the good life. And these are the people who are going to receive and live out the Sermon on the Mount. And all of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount lead back to the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes and the people who fit the category of the Beatitudes are those who live out his teachings. Additionally, the Beatitudes show what's actually important in the kingdom. So we can do a little exercise here. If you're creating a set of Beatitudes, pronouncing blessing on a group of people based on worldly wisdom, based on what people outside will tell you, you come up with a little bit different list. What would that include? Well, it might read something like this. Blessed are those who increase their wages. Blessed are those who do not work for an inferior boss. Blessed is he who is a boss, who's put in charge. You see, by the worldly standard, all these things show somebody who's really blessed. Show somebody who's got it figured out. Somebody who's happy and glad. Another exercise, you think about just watching advertisements. If you watch TV and, and see a few advertisements, you may get a list like this. Blessed is he who pursues happiness. Blessed is he who buys a new car. There's some that might argue that's actually a curse. Blessed is he who has good food, who has nice clothes. This is what the world will tell us are the proper Beatitudes. What about Jesus' list? It looks quite a bit different, doesn't it? Some things on his list don't sound like blessings at all. But he gives us this wisdom to live by. And I think if we live by it, we'll find true meaning. So this has become known as the Beatitudes, and this is just a transliteration of the Latin word for blessing. In some of the earliest English Bibles, this was put up there as a heading, and it's just stuck. And so we know this list is the Beatitudes today. When I did a web search for the word Beatitude, I came up with a dictionary di definition of a state of utmost bliss. It sounds a little comical to me, because I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not trying to get us in a place of utmost bliss. But he is trying to show us those who are truly happy, those who are, are glad in the kingdom, those who are blessed in the kingdom. And so, like we discussed, there's some unpleasant things on this list. But that leads to some other questions. Is this how Jesus wants me to be? Is this an ethic that I need to follow? And that's part of the answer. But remember who Jesus is talking to. And if you view it in the light of the crowds and the people who are sick and hurting, those who need a Savior, He's bringing good news to those who are lost, to those who are in need. This is good news because it shows that God's blessings are not reserved for those who are well off. God's blessings don't belong to those who are rich. The gospel is for all. So number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. So we start with this backwards logic, this upside-down thinking. What does it mean exactly to be poor in spirit? Is this spiritually poor? Is that what Jesus wants us to see? Is it physically poor? Or maybe is it both? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus puts it a little bit different. Twenty, Verse 20 and 21, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus is a little more direct in this case, isn't he? He just straight up says people who are poor, those who are in a lowly state. And it's fascinating to think that these are people that get the blessing. But Jesus, again, is showing all are welcome in the kingdom of God. There's no respect of sick or poor. There's no respect of rich or sick or well, rich or poor. Jesus invites all. And so sometimes we find ourselves in a dire situation where physically or spiritually, we're in need of help. And those who are in a sad state, who are poor in spirit, are most open to the gospel and most open to Jesus. It's hard for us, whenever things are going well, to realize that we actually need help. So if we think of this from a spiritual sense, we are spiritually broken. Spiritually, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous. And ultimately, it comes to Jesus and the sacrifice that He gave for us. And so, yes, we are in need of help. We are in need of a Savior. And so I think the admonition for us is to live like we are poor in spirit. Not that we're moping, sad, not that we're dejected people, but we understand that we need help. And we come to Jesus like one who is sick and in need of healing. Additionally, I think this is a little bit of an admonition for us to live within our means and to come to Jesus knowing that we need His help. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning can happen for various reasons, many different things. We think of the tragedies that have befalled our lives. It can be loss of a loved one. It can be loss of our finances, a state of hopelessness. It could be mourning over our own sin. It could be mourning over a medical diagnosis. Or it could be mourning with others in sympathy. And Jesus tells us to have hope because you will receive comfort, those who mourn. There's actually a lot of benefits from sorrow, and it tends to help us put things in proper perspective. Ecclesiastes 7, verse, verse 2 through 4, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon understood that we gain a lot of perspective whenever we go through tragedy. Whenever we lose something, when we're mourning, it really shows us what's important in life. And suddenly all the frivolous things don't seem to matter anymore because we've been hit hard. And so it offers an opportunity for us to recalibrate, readjust, to change what we're doing, put a perspective on what's really important in life. Additionally, we have an opportunity to be that comfort for someone else, to be there whenever somebody 
is in need and an opportunity to show the love of Christ and His kingdom. And additionally, what Christ is teaching is with the coming of this kingdom, He's in the process of making everything right. He's in the process of fixing the broken world that surrounds us. In Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As John sees a vision of the holy city and the church, he sees a day where all these things will pass away. Where ultimately all the mourning, all the suffering, all the pain is going to be gone forever. And in that, Jesus offers words of comfort for us. He's in the process of making all these things right. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Maybe you think of meekness being associated with weakness. And the way that meekness is defined today may be someone who's quiet, who's reserved, who goes with the flow, maybe a little bit of a pushover. And we often see meekness translated also as gentle. But if we look at the Greek, it's a specific type of gentle. See, meekness was often uh, used to mean strength that had been brought under control. And used specifically to describe horses who had been trained for a specific purpose. A horse who had been brought under control so that they could serve a purpose for their master. A horse that was broken for riding or one that was used to work a farm. And so you think about this wild beast that has all this potential and by itself is quite dangerous. But through breaking that horse, teaching it, you bring it under control to serve the master's use. And so, yes, being meek is being gentle. But those who are meek are gentle because they trust in their master and they trust in their God. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. So one who is meek is one who brings their body and their desires under control so their life can be used for God's purposes, for God's will. They humble themselves and esteem others higher than them. They put the master's will before their own. And Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. At first glance, this is a little bit of a puzzling statement. See, saying this is a temporal thing, are we getting... Uh, going to receive the earth, have land or property. But if you think about this from the spiritual perspective and, and with the kingdom in mind, he's saying, and, and the prophecies of the kingdom, that Jesus' kingdom is going to fill the entire earth. Well, yes, those who are meek are going to inherit the earth. They're going to inherit Christ's kingdom and help spread his kingdom over the entire earth and expand its borders. Number four, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So as I think of, thought about righteousness, I just think of general goodness, being a good person. But righteousness is closely related to justice. And when we think about acting justly or rightly, we are acting fairly. We're acting justly with our neighbor or with God. And so in the old law, if someone brought an accusation against you and it found that that accusation was false, you were declared just. You were declared righteous. And that's what the meaning of righteousness is. And so, 
as we think about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, food and drink are necessary for life. And so for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or those who see righteousness as it's necessary for life, it's necessary to sustain life. And they look around the world and see that there is injustice, that there is, there is no righteousness, that there are things that are going unchecked. And they hunger and thirst after righteousness. Being hungry and thirsty is a state where we're lacking something. And it's very rare, unless you're fasting, that you purposely put yourself in a state of hunger or thirst. And so it implies that something is missing. And certainly for the Jews at this time, looking out at the world around them, looking at the injustice that was being done, there were those who hungered and thirst after righteousness. And the same as we look around our world today, there's plenty to be upset about. There's plenty where justice and righteousness are lacking. But God is going to make things right, whether that injustice is done to you or someone else. Psalm 103, verse 6, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God pays special attention to those who are oppressed, those who are put down by others. And the admonition here is those who wait patiently on the Lord will be filled. They'll see all things made right. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I went through this study, I found that I was basically getting re-educated on what a lot of these words meant. And mercy was another one of those. As I thought of mercy was God restraining punishment from me, punishment that I deserved, and closely associated it with forgiveness, finding myself in a place where I'm begging for mercy, thinking about it in that context. But mercy is closely related to compassion. And compassion, we understand, is empathizing with someone and that moving us to action. And so when it talks about God having mercy on us, He's having compassion on us. Compassion for the state that we're in. And so this one's pretty self-explanatory, right? If you are compassionate on others, you'll see that compassion reciprocated. Likewise, those who practice forgiveness will be forgiven of their Father. And so those who are merciful do acts of charity, and they are the charitable servants in the kingdom of God. 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has this, this world's, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Those who are merciful and compassion show the love of Christ by their actions. It's not just walking the, talking the talk. It's not just thoughts and prayers, but it's being the difference by that motivating us to action. And if we think about that, it's extremely difficult and it's not valued in the world. Taking of my time and resources to help somebody else, it's very hard. But we see that the merciful do great things for Christ. And it can be simple things that we do on a daily basis. When you provide food for somebody who, on a meal train, that's an act of mercy. When you go and visit somebody, that's an act of mercy. When you help somebody restore their relationship with God, that's an act of mercy. We also see people do great things, great acts of mercy, 
establishing hospitals in the name of Christ, rehabilitation centers, children's homes. And there's all these opportunities to do acts of mercy that show the love and compassion of Christ. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think all these things really just build on each other. And as I think about living with a pure heart, perhaps maybe this is the most difficult. Because being part of the kingdom is purifying what's inside of you. And as Jesus goes on in his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, living these things out requires a pure heart. Fulfilling the law, heeding to Christ's instructions, means that we've got to purify what's inside of us. And so as we think about one who hides the Word of God in their heart, they are desiring to see God. That in itself is an action to see God and to see Jesus as they truly are. In 1 John chapter 3, again, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. As John is talking about the resurrection and ultimately seeing God and Christ face to face when we are resurrected with Him, he's saying those who will be a part of that are those who purify themselves. Just as Jesus is pure, we've got to work on our own heart. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about all the evil things that come from within. Ultimately, they show themselves outwardly. And all the wicked, sinful things start inside our heart. And so we must be purifying our heart. We must be looking to God's Word, looking to the example set by Jesus, and striving to live like Him. And on the final day, we will see Him unveiled and see Him face to face. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. To be called the son of God or the son of someone means that you show their characteristics. And restoration is always better than separation. And those who seek to mend broken relationships, they are blessed. And it's a tough job. It's a messy job at times. Sticking yourself into somebody else's problems, seeing two people that you love and trying to reconcile them, or be reconciled to somebody else that has wronged you or you've wronged them. But those who do this show the character of God. And the ultimate act of peace, the ultimate olive branch extended was God sending His own Son to come and give us an example, to show us what that looks like and ultimately be given as an atonement and a sacrifice for us. God makes peace with us, makes peace with His creation. And so it's messy and it's ugly to get in between two people. But restoration is better than separation. And if you think about relationships that you've seen restored because of Jesus Christ, at times it's a downright miracle. See, people that once hated each other, you thought that it was totally broken, unreconcilable, and through the act of Jesus Christ and through the love of Jesus Christ, we see those relationships restored. And it's amazing, and it's a miracle. As Jesus finishes these out, 
verses 10 through 12, he's got two final blessings. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we are striving to live in the kingdom. We're striving to live out the Beatitudes in our lives. It's going to upset others. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. When we want to do righteousness, make peace with others, uh, live, live in a state of meekness, do acts of mercy, sometimes we'll find that we're ridiculed and persecuted. And we take up the name of Jesus and follow after Him, other people don't understand that. And they may see us strive after this wisdom and, and think that it's all backwards. Why in the world would you follow this? Why would you follow Jesus Christ? And because of that, say evil things about you. Say things that aren't true. Jesus says you are blessed if that happens. Ultimately, these things require action. And if we don't have any action, these things probably won't happen. But he says, great is your reward in heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This great kingdom that's coming, when one day all will be made right, you will be a part of that. So despite when these things happen, we think nothing of it because we have true blessings. We have true blessings from Jesus and from God. And we seek to follow Him with a pure heart. So as we think about this list here on the left, we see a picture begin to form. And all these fit into place like a puzzle. And you start to see Jesus in this list. He lived by these things perfectly. He shows us what it means to live out the Beatitudes in our lives. He shows what it means to be truly blessed. And he finishes the thought with this, in verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These people that the world don't understand, the world looks down on, they are the true light of the world. They are the salt of the earth. And this is the message that Jesus is giving to these people. You are the ones who can make a difference in the world. The kingdom is grown by the faithful testimony of those whose lives have been changed by it. And ultimately, living out the Beatitudes and doing these things is what brings Christ's blessing on the world. It's how that blessing spreads to all nations. When we live in meekness, we do acts of mercy. When we purify our hearts, we reconcile broken relationships. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. When we mourn with others, then you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the city that's set on a hill. Do not hide these things. When other people see these things, see you living by the Beatitudes, doing these things in your life, they will see the kingdom of God. They will see God in you and give glory to Him. And this is how we see that blessing spread out. We see that blessing reach others. 
And so as we close this morning, my encouragement to you is to live out these blessings, to live these things out in your life. The way that Jesus extends his blessing to the world is through you. And these are the things that truly have an impact on people, doing acts of mercy, making peace with one another, living in a state of meekness. We've all had this done to us. We've seen these things in our lives. I've heard it said before, if you want to find true happiness, do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. The world would tell you to do those things that are expedient, to live by their wisdom. But Jesus shows that true meaning, happiness, and blessing is found in Him and is found in His kingdom. So live out the Beatitudes. Live these blessings and be a blessing in someone else's life. If you want to join Christ's kingdom this morning, we want to offer the invitation. If you want to be baptized and have your sins washed away, you can do that. If you have another need and you need prayers of the church, we'll ask that you come as we stand and sing.